From WPVMLP in Asheville, this is the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Katherine Campbell. And I'm Jonathan Ammons, and this is Crumb. you're quite familiar with them. Those signs on the restaurant doors going viral on the internet. Closed today, short-staffed, no one wants to work anymore. At this point, as the whole world is starting to reopen in the waning days of the pandemic, the restaurant industry is wrestling with what many are calling the most serious labor crisis in recent history. But what if it isn't a labor crisis at all? Back in 2017, I wrote a piece for the Mountain Express called Falling Short, What's Causing Asheville's Labor Shortage. At the time, the unemployment rate was just 3.8%, and restaurants across Asheville were having a really hard time finding staff for the back of house. And while it seemed easy to chalk it up to being a simple labor shortage that no one wanted to work anymore, it, like most things in this world, wasn't that simple. 
Oddly enough, that 2017 article was the fulfillment of a kind of prophecy I had made in an article the previous year. That one was about the industry's growing threat of oversaturation, that there were so many restaurants popping up in a small city like Asheville that the threat wasn't a lack of customers to go around. It was, because of the rising housing cost, going to be a lack of staff. So fast forward four years, and the labor shortage never went away. And that's when the pandemic struck. Let's just start by making a couple things crystal clear. The labor shortage that the restaurant industry is experiencing across the country right now is not caused by unemployment bonuses. According to a study by the San Francisco Reserve Bank, only 1 in 28 people have turned down a job that they would normally accept to stay on unemployment. That's around 3.5% of 322,000 people nationwide. In other words, nearly exactly the same amount of people on unemployment in 2017 when I wrote that article about the restaurant labor shortage. To put that in a local context in a city like Asheville, if that 3.5% holds, it would mean that a meager 250 people aren't going back to work. That's it. Secondly, this labor shortage is not caused by people not going back to work. It's caused by people not going back to the same industry they used to work in. But don't take my word for it. So when Steve told me that we were shutting down the restaurant, I was already, all of us there were deeply, deeply burnt out. That's Adam Rawlings. He was a 15-year veteran of restaurant kitchens when the pandemic struck and shut down Ox Bar, a favorite Asheville spot that permanently shuttered. So what did Adam do with all that spare time during lockdown? He started his own woodworking company, Crow Dog Creations. And I had kind of been toying with the idea of, of this woodworking idea. And so my, my, my plan was to just keep working in kitchens and, and slowly phase myself out from middle management, you know, slowly, slowly phasing into the woodworking, you know, doing the woodworking as like starting it as like a side gig and slowly moving for like growing it until it can actually support me. And uh, and then when Oxbar closed, I just decided like, well, this is my shot. Let's let's see if the see if I can make this work because I did I just di- I didn't have the heart to go back into the restaurants. It wasn't for it wasn't really for for fear of for fear of covid or anything like that. It was it was for fe- it, you know, it was for it was a quality of life decision. And Adam isn't the only one I talked to who has left the kitchen for greener pastures. After posting on several food and beverage groups on social media to see if anyone had changed careers during the pandemic, I was absolutely inundated with responses, like Joanna Kearns in D.C. Sorry, I'm just finishing up some ice cream. She had 30-plus years in the restaurant game. She jumped ship, too. Well, I am doing two things. One of the things that I'm using this opportunity for, and I've... It's been almost six months, I think, since I've worked. And the entire time I was working, I was dabbling, dipping my toes into other interests. The biggest one of which is um, green roofs and living walls and landscape design. And so I'm starting my own business, doing those things, and then also being the main point person for a friend who has a home staging business. When people put their homes on the market, bring in all the furniture and decorations and 
you know, set it up for photos and for people when they come to do a walkthrough of the house. Clyde Singleton, who had already left a career as a pro skater to become a chef, changed careers yet again, taking the pandemic lockdown as an opportunity to move from Winston-Salem back home to Jacksonville, Florida. Clyde opened a clothing line called Ali Lama, started a skateboarding podcast, WCRP, and is running pop-ups with his own food cart, Cooking with Clyde. I just knew I deserved something better than that. You know, like, I didn't know what it was. And I was like, you know, I got a little talent. I'm, I know I like to work. And, um, you know, I shouldn't be stressing out on a place to stay when I'm working two jobs. And this, I, There's just more out there for me. You know, like, and, you know, like, I feel like that got, that got me out. That got me where I needed to be, you know. And, it, you know, and I think that was, that was a very important lesson for me, too, because had I not left, you know, a lot of things that's happening now wouldn't be happening. You know, I'd probably just be very complacent and, on what I was doing, which wasn't bad, but, you know, I just had bigger goals. It's like skateboarding, man. You know, I was in Florida and I was like, I got to get out of here, dude. You know, I got dreams like everyone else. I do, man. You know, I'm, I don't want to be that old dude cooking on the line, like, oh, man, like, you know, like, <laughs> nah, dude, no, no, no. Yeah, I work with too many of them dudes, you know, like, Old dudes in there mad as hell, like slamming around hamburger patties. Like, nah, man, that will not be me. I like what I do. I'm not trying to get a truck or that's just a headache. You know, like the way I can do business and the people that I do business with, it works perfect. You know, I go in, I knock it out and I'm, I'm out of there. You know, I don't, I don't need a big truck. I don't need, I don't need all that stuff. It seems to me that if we live in a society that has constantly told people to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, or that if they don't like the wage they're earning, then they need to find a better job or make one for themselves, that we shouldn't get angry when they actually do just that. So people have left Asheville because the cost of housing was so expensive. People have left the um, restaurant industry because they didn't have job security during a pandemic, so they needed to find other job options. Um, people have chosen to go back to school, um, explore other industries, find other towns to live in where the rent wasn't so high. Um, and. Uh, one of our business owners that is living wage certified pointed out to us that there's just a lot of restaurants and hotels looking for workers all at the same time. Um, and so that, you know, in his opinion, this is not a new issue. That's Emma Hutchins. She's the living wage program coordinator for the Center for Just Economics. We are not calling this a labor shortage. We are calling this a wage crisis. Um, I do think that there's a good chance that both um both issues are happening simultaneously, but there is this elephant in the room, which is that previously workers were being told that they were disposable, that if they didn't want their job, someone else wanted it. And um, and then there was a pandemic where workers were told that they were essential and they um, were heroes for risking their lives to keep basic services open. And now um, workers are being told they're lazy for not wanting to go back to work. Um, so I do think this narrative around workers has been really wild for the past few years. And people now see that I, I think workers in this moment have a lot of power. They have a lot of choices and they are taking their time and choosing carefully where they want to work because um, because 
They can wait for a job with better wages. They can opt for a job where they're treated with dignity and respect. Um, and I think workers are taking advantage of having options and choices available to them. Overall, this shortage doesn't have a single cause. James Sutherland is the owner of Blue Dream Curry. He says they've had staffing issues for years, despite offering $17 an hour and a week's paid vacation. James eschews the tendency to oversimplify these kinds of problems, noting that it isn't simply a wage issue. It just seems like everybody reopened at the same time, and there's a bunch of new places. So those two things in combination are what the problem is. And then, you know, there's also just a lot of people that have started moving on from this industry in general for good reason. And I mean, you know, it's happened with a lot of industries over the years. And I think the problem here is they keep building hotels, they keep pushing the tourist business. And obviously that's a big money maker for a lot of people. And it's great that they're doing that, but you can't do that without having an infrastructure behind it. But yeah, it's just a matter of you keep building hotels and you don't build any affordable housing and you try to, you know, push this tourist business, but you don't have any sort of late night buses or anything for people working in bars, you know, and now it's like Uber and Lyft is kind of hard to come by because everybody's doing food delivery and they don't really want to do the taxi services anymore. And so, you know, it it's definitely a time for this city to take a little bit of a stand. It's just, you know, money always talks and, and it just seems like, you know, even with the, the federal government, it's like, there has to be some kind of money-making incentive for anything to happen. James is right. Money talks. And there's been substantial pushback among restaurant owners to raising the minimum wage. But as more and more workers flee the industry, even the $17 James is offering might not be enough. $17.30 an hour living wage sounds really high. And it's actually very conservative. So the way we calculate the living wage is using a four-year average of fair market rent data from HUD. And so that means that the number we plugged into our formula isn't the 2021 fair market rent. It's an average of the last four years. If we had plugged in the 2021 numbers into our formula, the living wage rate would be closer to $21 an hour. This is for a one-bedroom apartment for a single individual with no dependents. So immediately, if you have a child, $17.30 is not a living wage for you. So this is, this is a conservative number. So the living wage certification program is meant to be an educational tool to help people understand where the wage floor needs to be. Because the minimum wage for the United States hasn't increased. Um, it will be 12 years in July, the last time the minimum wage increased for the United States. And so we are seeing states go ahead and implement uh, minimum wage bills um, that are increasing the minimum wage in cities and in states and other parts of the country. There is a bill in North Carolina advocating for that um, change here in the state, although I don't expect to see it pass. So because we've had the 725 minimum wage for so long, which isn't enough for anyone working only 40 hours a week living anywhere in the country to pay their rent, we have to have a better understanding of a reasonable wage floor. And I think people are getting more comfortable using this $15 an hour number. By the time it takes effect, that actually isn't going to be an, an equitable wage floor already. So for Buncombe County, I mean, 1730 is still, that's not a thriving wage. That is the least that you can make in Buncombe County and afford your basic 
needs, your basic cost of living without living in poverty. It's, it's not enough to save. It's not enough to go on vacation. It's just enough to not be in poverty if you are a single individual with no children. Beyond wages, Emma notes that a key reason for the restaurant exodus is the housing. Remember back at the beginning of this story when we talked to Adam and Clyde? Both of them have moved out of Asheville at some point because of housing. Adam to the outskirts and Clyde to Winston-Salem and eventually Florida. Between 2010 and 2020, the rent in Asheville has seen a 58% rise and currently sits atop the list of the most expensive housing costs in North Carolina. Add to that the fact that Asheville's wages are 15% lower than the national average, and you start to understand the sudden exodus of the city's restaurant workers. So if workers can't afford to live in Asheville, what does that mean for the future of the restaurant industry that draws people to Asheville in the first place? You can't just look at wages without looking at housing. And it is our hope that the Asheville business owners will get involved with this fight for affordable housing, because I think that we all have a great stake um, in, you know, the ability to continue living here, working here, um, owning businesses here is going to really be contingent on this affordable housing question. Um, Someone recently brought it to my attention that Charleston has had a labor shortage for a really long time. And the norm has become businesses are just closed two or three days a week. Um, Workers decide where they want to work. If they don't like it, they can move on to the next place. And it just never occurred to me that these issues can be permanent. I've always heard this myth of a housing bubble. And I don't think that we're, I don't think that the bubble is going to pop. This is a this is basically a resort town now, um, and so I think that we need to, as a community of people who live here, start treating these issues as if they're not temporary. They're not just because of the pandemic. These are permanent issues until we advocate for real solutions to them. Um, and so I I think that your question of whether or not businesses are going to be able to do it is a great question. Obviously, our local businesses are part of what makes this town so special. It's part of the reason people want to come here. So we're going to have to advocate for for change in order for them to be able to sustain and survive. Back when the pandemic began, economists and talking heads were calling it the Great Reset, saying that all of the economic shutdowns and lockdowns around the world were poised to reboot our industries and economies. It would be foolish not to expect the game to change after someone resets the board. For generations, the restaurant industry has been a place where competent, skilled workers were raked over the coals night after night. It should come as no surprise that given the long break of the pandemic, many are choosing not to do that anymore and have found other things to do instead. I've spent the last decade writing about wage issues, about sexual harassment in the restaurant industry, about substance abuse in the restaurant industry, about how hard it is on people and how if we don't do something about those things, the entire industry could be at risk. Well, perhaps this is our reckoning. And you cannot say as a society that we don't deserve it for letting it be this wrong for so long. That was John with his story, Help Wanted. You can find that piece and all of our backstories on our website, dirty-spoon.com. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Founded in 1979 by the pioneering Mark Rosenstein and reimagined by Chef William Disson over a decade ago, the Marketplace Restaurant is back open and serving their signature fresh foods farmed by our neighbors. Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant, the Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region and our farmers have to offer. For more information on our underwriters or to find out how you can support us through our Patreon, 
visit dirty-spoon.com. In the summer of 07, I was sure I'd go to heaven, but I was hedging my bets at VBS. The preacher in a t-shirt told me I could be a leader, taught me how to build a fire and to spread. i
I feel weird My ex just broke up with the person they broke up with me for Three years later And at the same time as I'm falling in love The breakup album I made about her isn't even out this makes me sadder than I ever could have imagined I never would have imagined I thought maybe I should bring her the acoustic guitar I used to write about her on Cause guitars are better than synthesizers for writing For a great many people working in the restaurant industry, the kitchen is their second chance. With many companies and corporations wary of hiring anyone with a conviction or rap sheet, restaurants are among one of the most common jobs for people trying to restart their lives after a period of incarceration. For people of color, who are often disproportionately paid less than their white coworkers in the service industry, that can inspire an entrepreneurial spirit, which is exactly how Antoine Gutierrez became known as Chef Fresh. Dr. Michelle Lee met him while he was providing some sweet relief for hospital workers during the height of the pandemic. A year ago, I was a young doctor working in the COVID intensive care unit in New York City at the height of the pandemic. My fellow healthcare workers and I worked around the clock, managing electrolytes, crashing patients, and difficult family calls. Luckily, we had an outpouring of support from local New Yorkers, many of whom donated meals to nourish us through the marathon. I was a food writer on the side throughout medical school, and a foodie. As a way to take my mind off the pandemic, when I wasn't on the unit, I helped facilitate over a thousand meal donations from local New York area businesses to Mount Sinai Hospital healthcare workers. I turned 30 years old in the COVID unit, and what otherwise would have been a depressing Saturday shift was sweetened by a surprise birthday cupcake delivery 
by Chef Fresh at Fresh Taste Bakery. Chef Fresh hand-delivered his rose gold monogram 30 cake made with French vanilla cupcakes. I shared amongst my fellow doctors and nurses who were also on the weekend shift with me. I could see their smiles light up their faces as they bit into his delicious cupcakes. Many of us were tired and socially isolated from our families, mine included, for their safety, and the hospital was the only source of social interaction we had. Although we were wearing our protective equipment and spaced apart from each other, it felt nice to have us come together and cupcakes were a wonderful way for us to regain a sense of normalcy. I felt happy and touched by Chef Fresh and local New Yorkers' kindness. Even if I was in the midst of a pandemic, away from my family and knee-deep in heart-wrenching clinical work, I felt cared for by my city, my home, my New York at that moment. I found the birthday cupcakes had been donated by Gabby Armour and other kind New Yorkers who had helped procure meals to raise morale for healthcare workers on the front lines. I learned more about Chef Fresh, whose real name is Anton Gutierrez. Gutierrez's story is remarkable. He is a native New Yorker who left prison 10 years ago at the age of 25. He found his passion for baking through a second chance program, the Dough Fund, that offered training through the New York City pastry culinary industry. Despite having no formal culinary pastry degree, he was able to leverage his love for baking and entrepreneurial spirit into a successful virtual bakery over the last several years despite the pandemic. Throughout the pandemic, Gutierrez worked with organizations to brighten healthcare workers' days as a way to give back to the city that gave him a second chance. Culinary arts literally saved my life. I grew up in an environment outside New York City with little opportunity. Since the age of seven, I was always that kid raking leaves and shoveling snow, looking for a way to make money. I grew up in a broken family, moved in and out of group homes, got caught up in the gang. My dad left the country at 16 years old to avoid his own troubles with the law. At 16 years old, I witnessed someone getting shot and I went back to New York. A year later, I had my first arrest between the ages of 18 and 19 and went back to jail between the ages of 20 to 21. I met my son for the first time on a visiting floor in a jail and that was the moment I knew I needed to change. Prison was terrible the despair and loneliness from missing my family. I was 24 years old in 2011 when I got out of prison. The Doe Fund was my opportunity. The people from Ready, Willing, and Able was a way to get a job, career, and an apartment. I never had a formal culinary education, but I had a natural entrepreneurial drive and experience from the streets that taught me well in the kitchen. I thought I'd move Snapple and drive vans, but they put me in the kitchen. I'll never forget the day that Chef Kenny Smith and Chef Gino Saldrano brought me into the kitchen and taught me how to bake. That day was April 12, 2012. That magical day, my life and time came. Those chefs planted those seeds and pretty soon I couldn't be dragged out of the kitchen. I started learning how to make vanilla buttercream, yeast fermentation, chocolate chip banana bread, coffee cake, I learned how to create a prominent resume working for five years in restaurants around New York City, including Rockefeller Center and Gramercy Park Hotel prior to starting Fresh Taste Bakery. We grew through word of mouth and online through Yelp, Instagram, the website, and Google searches. 
we make specialty cupcakes like Hennessy infused for New Year's. And the carrot cake cookie is always a bestseller. We also make custom birthday cakes that can be gluten-free and vegan. I learned how to create a brand for myself and an online bakery platform that eventually became successful. I credit Defy Ventures, a New York-based entrepreneurial and leadership program for molding me into a business owner. My business now supports me, my family, including my son and daughter. Opportunity was something I was waiting for my entire life. The look on my customers' faces when they bite into my carrot cake cookie or specialty cupcakes is something I live for every day. The funny thing is that I was able to pick up things very well because baking is not too different from my past drug operation. All the ingredients for both are measured in ounces, grams, and pounds. Understanding the different reactions that ingredients had when processed was somewhat familiar. Instead of flipping narcotics, I now flip butter, sugar, and flour. Both processes involve packaging, networking, customer service, and commercializing. Even in the drug world, we prize ingredients consistency in having the highest quality goods. It takes a lot of persistence and patience to get to that level of figuring what works. I believed I had the talent but no outlet. More than 10 years ago, I never imagined that I would be out of prison for more than six months. My biggest goal back then was just to make it home. I had a five-year parole and I never known anyone who had that long of a parole without getting into trouble. I knew a slip on a banana peel would have landed me back and I'm still amazed that I was able to break out of that system. The same week I got parole, I became self-employed. I started as a small startup in Harlem. Celebrity DJ Khaled posted about my cupcakes and I started to get involved in corporate catering and baked for an NFL alumni brunch. I was supposed to go on a three-city baking tour of NYC, DC, and Atlanta until COVID hit. Prior to the pandemic, my target demographics were nightlife and corporate catering. But then the building shut down and all the office workers started working from home. I had to figure out how to survive. The lines around the grocery store would be so long, so making sure I had double the ingredients that I didn't run out. Luckily, as a virtual bakery already, I was able to keep the overhead low. We never had a brick and mortar store and delivered all five boroughs successfully for years. Ironically, many other businesses ended up picking up this business model during COVID. I think that making sure that you're prepared and making sure you have resources and having faith in people rather than fear is important. I had a friend at the New York Presbyterian, Brooklyn, who raised $1,000 from across the country to donate to frontline workers, and I matched half. I started with a few dozen cupcakes and other hospitals reached out. I eventually ended up baking over 400 cupcakes for New York City healthcare workers. We dropped off cupcakes to New York Presbyterian Allen Hospital, New York Presbyterian Cornell Hospital, Mount Sinai Hospital, and New York Presbyterian Lower Manhattan. It felt good to give back because the healthcare workers are the ones really putting their lives at risk. Giving back is very important to me because I feel blessed with an opportunity that elevated me to a point where I want to give back to the people who grew up in the same environment. I've talked to elementary school students and incarcerated individuals at Rikers. I'd love to knock down doors and excuses and tell these people in tough situations that there is no limit in life. The hustler spirit got me through the pandemic and it speaks back to that seven-year-old kid in me who would always shovel snow and rake leaves. I want to tell my younger self 
You got talent, young boy, and you're a king. The world is bigger than it seems, and you have to go out and get those opportunities. I thank those social workers, teachers, programs, and chefs throughout New York who made it possible for me. Being an entrepreneur is always busy, and there's always a hundred things to do, even now. But I have a good group of people around me. I believe if you put positive energy out, you'll always get positive energy back. Giving back is very important to me. Culinary arts saved my life, and I learned how to bake from a work training program called the Dough Fund. I feel blessed that opportunity elevated me to a point to where I want to give back to people who grew up in the same environment as me. The pandemic brings out the power of the pivot. You can't be too invested or set in your ways. The only way to survive the pandemic is to keep your eyes and mind open. This is not the time to be fearful. I try different things and figure out what works for me and always looking at what the game is missing. It's still a beautiful thing to be able to continue creating and making revenue from takeout and making that a permanent part of your business. I believe in always being social and not competing with others, just creating and letting your product speak for itself. I'm always pushing myself to make the most bomb creations so that people want to tap me in for their events. Being an entrepreneur is always busy and there's always a hundred things to do even now, but I have a good group of people around me. I believe if you have positive energy out and you always get positive energy back. It's not just about baking, but creating experiences for other people. Danielle Venn, Davian Bristol, a.k.a. Spaceman Jones, reading Dr. Michelle Lee's Chef Fresh. You can find that story on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com.
All right. So have you ever done a secret shopper gig or have you been secret shopped before? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've been secret shopped before. You've been secret shopped? Yes. It was one of my first jobs here in Asheville. Um, I worked for Abercrombie, which was the middle Ah. school version of Abercrombie and Fitch. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was my first job in college. And so I'm, I'm there and I'm basically, you know, hired to work to babysitting. I'm babysitting. I'm babysitting. I'm definitely babysitting and folding t-shirts for minimum wage, uh, thousands upon thousands of t-shirts. And so what happened was one evening, in addition to getting our local celebrities in where we had to shut down the store and allow them to shop, you know, themselves. One time we got, you know, this unassuming family in one evening and uh, it was a mom and a bunch of girls and they just tore through the clothes. This is this is like 15 minutes before we close at 9 p.m., right? And um, they A whole tried, family? Yeah, people? it seemed like a whole family of people. And, you know, it was like one mom, four girls, and they're tearing through all the clothes. They're trying on everything. They don't buy anything. Um, and then they leave. And it was... <laughs> And, and so then we're, you know, we're stuck folding t-shirts and stuff for the next 45 minutes and cleaning up after them. Ugh. And uh, later I found out that it was a, like a quality assurance test or a secret shopper test um, from one of the internal management people from Abercrombie. Was this something they'd set up like independently or was it like a corporation they'd hired to do it? Um, I don't know because I wasn't, I wasn't on that level. Did they, did I wasn't they... privy to that secret information. Yeah. Did you get in trouble for anything? <laughs> did they write anybody up for no, anything? No, fortunately. Thank goodness. We were all, we were all a-okay in our, in our 2000, 2001 halter tops and khaki pants of the season. Yeah. I got hired <laughs> once. You? I got hired to be a secret shopper at the Orange Peel, which wow. is like a local music venue here in Asheville. It's a big music venue, like been written up in Rolling Stone and everything. And uh, they, the owner asked me to go in, gave me like a beer allowance, paid for my ticket. I got to pick what show I wanted to go see. And I took a friend of mine who I don't really hang out with that often, but I knew that she liked the artist I was going to see. And Um, so we go to the show and we get in and, um, as soon as we get through the security line, she's like, man, I can't believe they let me in. And I was like, what do you mean? And she like opens up her purse and she had like a baton, some pepper spray and a pistol (laughs) in her purse. And I was like, what are you doing walking around with all this? And so like everything about the experience was great. All the servers were amazing. All the bartenders were great. The staff was really helpful. We were supposed to come up with like problems that the staff had Mm -hmm. to solve. Yeah. And they were supposed to like answer our questions. We were supposed to be kind of picky and ask questions at the bar and it was slammed at the cocktail bar downstairs of course and they still wanted me to ask these like very needy questions be a little <laughs> bit of a needy bitch of a customer <laughs> and uh, they I, they so i did all of that and the bartender was awesome and she was just making all these other people's drinks and talking to us and answering her questions nonstop while she was like building these complicated cocktails and then she served us and everything was good and I was like, man, everything was really great, except we both got in with weapons. <laughs> oh <my gosh>. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, oh, that's not good, you know? And uh, yeah, that was that was my one experience as a secret shopper was the only thing that was wrong was that the person I took came in with very illegal things in, in, in her purse. <laughs> 
yeah. So when Christine Estelle was asked to be a mystery diner, uh, we were really intrigued to hear her story. And here's Tara Vita Weaver reading Estelle's story. Mystery dining left a bad taste in my mouth. That September evening, I texted my final reply. This message serves as my resignation from this position. My stomach sank as I slid my phone back into the top drawer of my classroom desk and adjusted my blazer's lapels. I wished the relationship didn't end so abruptly and impersonally, but after several weeks of aggravation and escalation in this minimal benefit job, I had to free myself. It started on Thursday, August 1st, 2013, a warm evening balanced by a light breeze. I walked directly to the bar at Treno Pizza Bar, as my email instructions from the day before told me to do. Todd greeted me with a smirk, accompanied by a perfunctory, how's it going? A vibrant blue baseball cap topped his bald head, and his black t-shirt lay snugly against his chest and biceps. When he stood, I saw he fit the 5'11 frame description he provided me in his email the day before so I'd know who to expect. He shoved both hands in the front pockets of his khaki shorts, his elbows pushing outward like wings, as he swayed slightly back and forth on his heels and toes. After three of us arrived, he made small talk while we waited for the fourth contender. Once she arrived, Todd escorted our group to the four-seater booth. I slid toward the window, and the other woman sat next to me. The two men sat across from us, while Todd sat at the exposed end of the table on a wooden chair he'd taken from a nearby two-top. Todd and I had communicated via Craigslist and a preliminary email application for about one week leading up to that Friday night, which was our next step in our onboarding process. A tryout meal where we'd order food to share and soft drinks, and, in a written report due the following evening, showcase our ability to memorize, follow instructions, and write. That evening, we'd be testing the staff in terms of customer service and sales. At the table, Todd introduced everyone to each other and asked us to share our purpose for becoming a mystery shopper. I told the group how much I loved writing and trying new foods and how I felt this job would be the perfect combination of the two. While that answer was true, I also thought that this moonlighting opportunity, in conjunction with my teaching salary, seemed like minimal effort for a free meal, a little cash, and a resume builder. He outlined the expectations of a mystery diner before, during, and after each meal. Our entire conversation was whispered because he did not want the waitstaff to overhear anything. This was a live meal, he emphasized in his instruction email, so we had to be as inconspicuous and professional as possible. During our 75-minute meal, we dined on an appetizer, entree, and dessert, while Todd highlighted testimonials of clients and mystery diners alike. When Todd wasn't narrating the standards of service we should be looking for, he bragged about his clout as a restaurant mystery reviewer. He explained that when he'd be reading our tryout reports the following night, he would be primarily interested in our retention of how well the server described food items under our consideration and the pace of the meal, as well as our ability to vividly detail the food items we ultimately ordered. In addition to the customer service notes, Todd expected us to complete the report template to discuss the restaurant's ambiance, the food's flavors, temperature, and presentation, and other areas of concern. That night, he handled the bill. 
But in our future assignments, it was each mystery diner's responsibility to photograph all food items, scan the receipts to be later reimbursed, and capture the entire visit through detailed reporting, due within 24 hours of the meal. As someone who held a bachelor's and master's degree in English, and with a career in teaching writing and literature courses for over four years at that point, I assumed writing these reports would take less than the suggested one and a half to three hours that Todd noted. My first report came back with edits. Grammatically incorrect and syntactically awkward edits. Nonetheless, I accepted these edits and returned the document. Shortly thereafter, I received my meal reimbursement and a $15 payment. Over the next five weeks, I was assigned four restaurants to review. They included two American restaurants, one Pan-Asian restaurant, and one eclectic French restaurant. Although the food was delicious at each location, the tiresome work was hardly worth the effort. Each restaurant was located approximately 15 miles or more from my home, which meant I spent nearly the same time traveling to and from as I spent dining. That $15 payment never reached my pocket or my bank, as it was automatically eaten by travel and sometimes parking costs. Ultimately, I was unpaid for my labor. But that wasn't all. The French restaurant's pacing was incredibly slow and totaling over three hours, and Todd admonished me for writing that fact in my report. He scolded me for many true statements I made, claiming that I wasn't being objective enough. Numerous statements were ultimately discarded and redacted before he'd send the final draft to the client. Todd often criticized my pictures as low quality. Either they were too dark or too fuzzy, or they didn't adequately portray the items I ordered. I burdened myself to write my reports with as much accuracy and precision as possible because Todd was quick to correct my diction and syntax, often resulting in misplaced or dangling modifiers or odd usage. Yet he never provided a rationale for any, and I didn't feel confident to dispute them. Kara, one of Todd's mystery diners from a few months before my time, told me I wasn't alone. Many of his edits made little sense, were arbitrarily applied without explanation, and contradicted commonly held writing advice, she later told me. She too held a master's degree in English and felt perplexed by Todd's unnecessary edits. One time, after having spent a couple of hours to write a report the same night as the restaurant visit, as well as an hour of my teaching prep period the following day, Todd furiously texted me asking why I transposed the words brie that was on my hamburger with the brioche bun sandwiching everything together, implying that I was inept at being a mystery diner. I apologized for my oversight, but it wasn't good enough for Todd. He texted me back that if I couldn't get these reports correct on the first try, then he could not see himself assigning me any new restaurants. Kara said that she received a similarly unprofessional response when she quit. Without hesitation, I texted him my final reply, that I was resigning. Kara eloquently put into words what I felt in that final moment. The prospect of this job sounded great. Eat out for free, write a short report, and earn a few bucks. However, she and I both came to realize in just a handful of weeks that what sounded great in theory was quite the opposite in practice and reality. 
I'm not sure if my poor experience as a mystery diner was the result of not having much background in the food industry, or if I worked with a sole proprietor like Todd versus an auditing company with many employees. But aside from a few tasty meals, the experience of being a mystery diner ultimately left a bad taste in my mouth, one I likely will never repeat. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Founded in 1979 by the pioneering Mark Rosenstein and reimagined by Chef William Disson over a decade ago, The Marketplace Restaurant is back open and serving their signature fresh foods, farmed by our neighbors. Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant, The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region and our farmers have to offer. For more information on our underwriters or to find out how you can support us through our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com.
Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2021. All the text from our stories is available on our website, dirty-spoon.com. There you can also catch up on past episodes as well as subscribe to the show and help us keep going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that site is by Corinne Pease, Katrin Doza, Ashley Icomedes, Kelly Minear, Garnett Fisher, Paul Choi, and Marianne Papineau. Music in this episode by Crum, Lucy Dacus, Toth, Sharon Van Etten, and Angel Olson. Gruff Reese, Thelonious Monk, Benny Goodman, and John Bryan. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief, handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPVM. 